Oh, Lord Jesus, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for our children. Thank you for the Sunday school. And uh, we just pray that you'll bless them now, Father. And Lord, we pray for us now that you just help us to understand your word. And Lord, we, we can apply it to our lives. Lord, we can soak it in and we can, um, we can live it. And Lord, I pray that you just bless us as we um, study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing on the journey of Israel as they leave Egypt and the land of Goshen. They've been through the ten plagues, and we're picking up the story as the Israelites are camped between Pihakiroth, Pihakiroth, and Migdol. So the first stop was Sakoth, and they come along here. Well, I'm not sure if that's Etham or not, but it's it's kind of on the way. And they come along here, and there's a beach there, and like a canyon. And if you've been to the Rock City Petra, there's a big tall canyon and it's basically you walk through and there's only one way in one way out basically so um yeah and then they go over here to horrible or mount sinai and jabel Adlaws, otherwise known as that in saudi arabia so here's another topical one so you can see the the topography it's all like mountainous and they're wandering through this route through the mountains and they come down through this canyon onto this big beach and Solomon, 400 years later, put two pillars there. So that's a pretty good indication that's the right spot. And here's one. It's not real, obviously, but imagine what you'd feel like with water either side of you. I just wanted to try to get a picture of what it would be like in visual walking. Because if it was at this place where the beach is, then it would have been 800 metres deep at the deepest point. So a big wall of water either side, you know. A nice, easy gradient going down, sandy bottom, and, and about four degrees going down, four degrees going up, over about what, six kilometres it is, or six or eight k's wide. 800 metres isn't that much of a fall, but, you know, imagine 800 metres of water either side of you, and it would have been quite scary. So these people definitely showed a whole lot of faith. And... uh Here's some of the artifacts that they're supposed to have found. Some of the chariot wheels were covered in gold, and the coral doesn't grow in gold, and so they're still there. The wood's disintegrated, so you can't pick it up. And here's a picture of the beach, and you can see they come out of this canyon and onto this beach, and they can't go south because the mountains, and up here there's a, a some kind of fortress and more mountains. So they're on the beach, they've got the mountains, both sides and the sea behind them and the Egyptians are coming down that canyon and so it just kind of gives you a picture of um, where they were. Okay, so let's turn to Exodus chapter 14 and we'll pick it up in verse 10. Now we know where they are and what they're doing and why it was such a scary place. We can kind of have a bit more of an understanding of what we're reading now. So, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So, what do we do when we find ourselves afraid? Cry out to the Lord. Okay? It's the right thing to do, because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46.1 Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? So, 
very sarcastic because there's lots of graves in Egypt. It's like three quarters cemetery because of all their afterlife beliefs. And why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? So why did the Lord lead his people out only to seemingly box them in? So we got to this point last week and uh, going to suggest three reasons why God puts us in these very difficult situations. Do you remember that song, More Love, More Power, More of You in My Life? Anyone heard that song before? Yeah, it's an oldie. So, okay, and you want more of that? Great, okay, here's Piha Kiroth, and there's Migdol. I'm going to plant you right between them with your backs to the Red Sea. I'm going to put you into a place that you can't strategize, rationalize, or compromise your way out of in order that I might show you my power to deliver you in ways you would never have imagined. So that's the first one, that he wants to show us his power. So he puts us in places where it's hopeless, humanly speaking, but then he delivers us and to show us his power. Verse 12, Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. So, they're about a week out of Egypt. I'm guessing about a week, about seven days. And they have already, in their head, distorted the past. They're already thinking that it was better for them in Egypt than it really was. Remember, Egypt is the iron furnace. Egypt is the place of bondage, where they're getting whipped and and all that kind of thing. And it only takes a week, and they're starting to forget. And I reckon there's two things that we easily forget. We forget the blessings of following the Lord and we forget how bad it was before we came to know the Lord, how hopeless and awful it was before we found Christ. And also here we start to see the disappointing pattern of Israel's behavior in their march from Egypt to Canaan. As long as everything is going well, they usually obey the Lord. And there's plenty of times you'll see the words and thus say obey the Lord, thus they did this and thus they did that. You know, Building the tabernacle, yes, they did everything that God asked them to do. So as long as everything was going well, they obeyed Moses and they made progress, or the Lord and Moses. But if there was any trial or discomfort in their circumstances, they immediately began to complain to Moses and to the Lord and asked to go back to Egypt. So isn't that typical human behavior? So before we criticize them, we should take a look at our own lives and our own hearts. How much disappointment or discomfort does it take to make us unhappy with the Lord's will so that we stop believing and start complaining? Because <laughs> when we're complaining, we're not believing. Okay, see myself. I still have faith, but if you're complaining, then it's a lack of faith. We stopped believing. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians 5, 7. I think it's Wearsby said, Unbelief complains, but faith obeys and brings glory to the Lord. Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. So what is there to complain about when we have the wonderful promise, the Lord shall fight for you? So why complain? And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall see again no more forever. So the first phrase there, 
Do not be afraid. Now, I believe that Moses didn't know how God was going to deliver the people. So this is Moses exercising his faith. He had no idea that God was going to split the sea and walk the people through. All he knew, based on previous experience, was that God would help. God would deliver. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Moses kind of was thinking, this is such a bad situation that God has to come through. So when we see that our only hope is God, we are more likely to trust him. Isn't that funny? Sometimes it's the little things, the things we think that we can do in our own strength that get us caught up that we struggle with, not the big things that we know only God can do. There's a quote from Wearsby. Knowing that the enemy was in pursuit and hearing the wind blowing all night, the Israelites must have wondered what was going to happen and why God was taking so long. But when we have faith in God's promises, we have peace in our hearts. Why are you so fearful? Jesus asked his disciples after he had calmed the storm. How is it that you have no faith? Mark 4.40 Faith and fear can't live together in the same heart, for one will destroy the other. I'll read it again. Faith and fear can't live together in the same heart, for one will destroy the other. True faith depends on what God says, not on what we see or how we feel. It has been well said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, that's superstition, but obeying in spite of consequence. Uh, that's Wearsby, Warren Wearsby. The next phrase there is, stand still. Moses told the people of Israel to stop. So sometimes when we get into a hard place, we just need to stop. This is often the Lord's direction to believe it in a time of crisis. Despair will make you want to fall down stop you from standing. Fear will tell you to retreat. Impatience will tell you to do something now. Presumption will tell you to jump into the Red Sea before it is parted. (laughs) Yet as God has told Israel, he often tells us the same thing. Stand still and hold your peace as he reveals his plan. He put you in this situation, but he won't necessarily tell you he's going to get you out of it straight away. So be still. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. So Moses still didn't know what God was going to do, yet he knew what the result would be. Deliverance. He knew that God would save his people and that the enemies of the Lord would be destroyed. He could say to Israel, the Lord will fight for you. And then the next phrase, you shall see them no more. And doesn't just say you shall see them no more, but it says forever. So this is a bigger idea than just the destruction of the Egyptian army. I believe it's the fight against our flesh will one day be complete. The world will be gone, our sinful nature gone, the devil and the fallen angels bound for eternity, and the struggle will be over. David said to his son Solomon, Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Literally, play the part of a man, 1 Kings 2.2. Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may resist the devil, and having done all, to stand. So Moses is saying, don't give in, don't fall down, don't go back, just stand. And that's what God says to us today. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. So the first reason God put them in this situation was to show them his power. second reason is that 
they might experience his presence. It's when we are in a hard place that God reveals more of who he is to us. We get to know him by a new name, so to speak, and quite often literally. And you shall hold your peace. In other words, Moses said to the people, when you see the Lord fight for you, you'll regret your whining. You'll quiet down. You'll hold your peace. You'll, you'll regret that you were complaining and doubting before. Verse 15, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. So there's a time to pray and there's a time to act. And now here's a time to act. It was time to move forward. And as the leader, Moses was there and he had to set the pace. He had to be the one to go first. He had to be the one to get up and do something. Spurgeon says, uh, here's a quote from Spurgeon, talking about a person's personal life. There is a favorite sin of which he has long been guilty. He does not give it up, but he says that he will pray about it. God says to such a man, why do you cry out to me? Give up your sin. This is not a matter for you to pray about, but to repent of. The man says, I was asking for repentance. Ask if you will for repentance, but exercise it as well. There's lots of times when we say, oh, I will pray about that, but actually it's a time for action. We need to do something. So, Verse 16, But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel should go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So, was Moses' rod, or Moses stretching his rod over the sea, did that have any effect on the sea? No. So, in the same way, we're saved by a very simple action. Faith, belief. Our believing in something doesn't make it true, but when we do, and in obedience to what God wants, then we connect with God there, and we have this miracle of salvation. In the case of Moses, it's um, salvation of the people as they go through the Red Sea and uh, deliverance from his enemies. For us, uh, by faith, we are saved, having sins forgiven. Now, as an application here, water is a symbol of the word. Okay, So Moses dividing the sea, you could see the picture of what we are to do. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, as an application, we can say, hold out your rod of authority, say to your children, follow me as you set the pace and lead the way, as you divide the word of truth and explain it to them. Verse 17, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honour, over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So this is the third reason. So the first was we would experience more of his power. Second, that we would experience more of his presence. The third one is a demonstration of his preeminence, his sovereignty. So... Basically, God put them in this really difficult place to demonstrate to the Egyptians that he's God. This wasn't about the children of Israel. This was about God showing the Egyptians something. So, 
we might say, oh, I'm stuck in this marriage. I'm stuck with that parent. I'm stuck in this financial crunch. We cry. You know, we complain. Failing to understand that sometimes he can touch people who don't know him by putting us in uncomfortable, difficult, heartbreaking and challenging situations. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. So it's a hard lesson to learn when we think, well, what lesson is God teaching me here? It might not be. It might be because God is working through you to demonstrate his power, his love, his strength to people who are watching. Did you know that God uses us to teach angels? Ephesians 3, 10, 11 says that God uses his people to teach angelic beings. You can read that in your own time. So when God delivers us from a temptation or a crisis, it's as much a testimony to our invisible adversaries as it is to us. God uses each victory in our life to demonstrate to our unseen enemies of his power and ability to work in and through frail humanity. And think of Job. What did God do with Job? He boasted about Job. Hey, Satan, have you seen Job? He's faithful. He's righteous. He loves me. He's proud of us. Just like we're proud of our kids and we boast about our kids, God boasts about us. He says, hey, look, my kid, you know, I might boast about my kid being able to swim well or something like that. But God boasts about us being able to stand in trials. Look how strong he is. Look how faithful he is. Okay? Here's a picture to help you understand this. It's about Copernicus. So scandalized was the church that for decades she refused to acknowledge Copernicus' discovery. After all, how could the sun be the center of the planetary system? Surely the planets revolve around the earth, around man. Remember that? You know, they used to think that they, everything revolved around planet Earth because we were the center, but it doesn't. It revolves around the sun. Okay? And so in the same way, the sun needs to be, S-O-N, needs to be the center of our lives. Our lives shouldn't be revolving around ourselves, but rather the sun. If the pain doesn't go away, if the business doesn't work out, if the marriage isn't great, God would say, I love you, but it's not about you. I have a bigger plan. The Egyptians are watching. And when the people you work with see you continue to praise me, when your neighbors see you worshipping me, when your family sees you thanking me, I will be glorified. We need to accept that God is using us, working through us, as a demonstration for other people. And we can fight this until the day we die, because we're so, you know, human nature is so selfish, it's all about me. Or we can come to the place, you know, where we can realize that the sun jesus is the center of everything come what may jesus is the center of my universe it might not seem fair now we might not understand now but one day the waters will part because remember the georgian was sitting on that beach for a few hours maybe all night and wondering what was going to happen and the same will happen for us it's dark you know we don't know what god's going to do one day we'll be ushered into eternity and we'll hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. I had you boxed in, but you stood still. You didn't fall away. You didn't turn back. You didn't walk out. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So we exist for God. God doesn't exist for us. And the degree to which we allow him to do what he wants through our lives is the degree to which we will be rewarded immensely, immeasurably and eternally. 
So verse 19, And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. So this is uh, Jesus, as the Bible explains elsewhere. And now he's gone behind them to be their rear guard, to be a pillar of cloud between them and the Egyptians. And the pillar of cloud that went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all night. So the cloud was darkness to the Egyptians, but light for God's children. So think of the word of God. For us Christians, it's light. We can understand it. Egypt represents the world, it's darkness. They can't understand it because it's spiritually discerned. And why not? Because those who choose to walk in darkness love the darkness rather than the light. And for them, the Bible is confusing. But for those who seek to walk in the light, 1 John 1 7, it's a lamp to their feet and a light into their path. Psalm 119, 105. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch, that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels, <laughs> so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So I reckon this is the most humorous section of the Bible. For me personally, you know, you've got these you know, proud you know, muscly soldiers with these massive horses in front of these chariots and suddenly, you know, the, their wheel falls off and they're bouncing along and careering and, and rolling over and oh, it would have been hilarious. So uh, not so much for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites, watching these chariots come up, it's just, um, yeah, it would have been wow. Uh 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. So again, God is using Moses to do this miracle. God could have said, Okay, now I'm going to make the seas go back, but he's using Moses. He's establishing Moses' authority in front of the people. And God works through people. That's a fact. And if we're willing to work with him, he can do amazing things through us. And someone said, we can say that many miraculous works of God are yet to be done because no person has stepped forth to be the one who will stretch out their hand. Sometimes we're just too scared to take that step of faith. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. 
not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. As I showed that picture before, imagine 800 meters of water in the middle. It's just been incredible. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. At least until they forgot. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. So God delivered Israel in seemingly impossible circumstances. He demonstrated his faithfulness to Israel and to all his people. So just talking about God's honor. God says, I'm going to do this for my honor, for my glory. Spurgeon told the story of an old saint who lay on her deathbed and declared that Jesus would never forsake her because he had promised so. Someone asked her, but suppose that he did not keep his promise and you were to be lost. She answered, then he would be the greater loser than I. It is true that I would lose my soul, but God would lose all his honor and glory if he were not true. God's motive for delivering us is not only his love for us, but also a desire to guard his own glory and honor. We need to remember that. When um, David sinned with Bathsheba, one of the things, the consequences was God's name was blasphemed among the nations. So God's honor was hurt there. God was dishonored by David's disobedience. We need to be careful because God's honor is important to him. And as a result, of course, the baby died. Chapter 15. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang. So there's basically four verses or four stanzas to this song. God's victory is announced, 1 to 5. God's weapons are described, 6 to 10. God's character is extolled, 11 to 16. And God's promises are fulfilled, 16 to 18. And it's interesting. This is the first song recorded in Scripture. So. The first of anything is important, so we're going to have a little look at this song as we read through. The people who were once sighing, back in chapter 2, verse 23, are now singing. So before we were Christians, we were sighing, we were in bondage, but now we can sing. We have been redeemed, set free. This song is interesting because in Revelation 15, it says they're going to sing the song of Moses, which I think is this song. Sung around the Crystal Sea by us, so we'll sing this song too. Between Exodus and Revelation, we have parts of it in Psalm 118 and also in Isaiah 12. So, parts of it are used elsewhere as well. Now, we sing to the Lord, we don't sing about the Lord, we're not singing for the Lord, we're singing to the Lord. When we sing praises to God, that's what we're doing. We're singing to the Lord. He is our audience. It doesn't matter if there's a hundred people in the room or you're the only one. It's the same. Your heart should be singing to the Lord. Okay, the song. And spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. The Lord has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. 
my father's God, and I will exalt him. Talking about worship, David said in Psalm 22 verse 3, The Lord inhabits, or literally is enthroned upon, the praises of his people. So praise is a really important part of our Christian walk. Whether it be communal or individual, we need to learn to praise the Lord. Even if you can't sing well, it doesn't matter. Praise the Lord. The Lord is my strength and song. So when we let God be our strength, then he will also be our song. But if we don't let him be our strength, then he won't be our song. We sing because of the victory won by the great strength of the Lord. We have a singing joy in life because his strength will never let us down. Now Spurgeon, a quote here, Note, the word is not, the Lord gives me strength, but the Lord is my strength. So, how strong is the believer? I say it with reverence, he is as strong as God. The Lord is my strength. So that's Spurgeon, I like that. We are as strong as God because our strength is God's. Okay, The Lord is my strength. He doesn't just give me some strength, he is my strength. So think about that. Nothing is too hard for God. Okay, Nothing is too hard for us. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So one of God's names is Jehovah Sabbath, which means Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. And it's used 285 times in the Old Testament. So people get, you know, a bit messed up when they're talking about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. And you read verses like this. And I've heard people say that the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament because there's so much violence and war and, you know, how can it be the same God? Well, Jesus Christ is both the Lamb who died for our sins and he is the Lion who judges sin, Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And one day he will ride on his horse to conquer his enemies, in Revelation 19, 11. So, for people who only emphasize God is love, like in 1 John 4, 8 and 16, and they forget that God is light, in him is no darkness at all, uh, 1 John 1, 5, is to rob God of his attributes of righteousness, holiness and justice. So you can't have a good God if he's not a holy God. Okay, God is love. And we love that God is good. But if he's a good God, he's also a holy God. So Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. So this is a anthropomorphism. So it's understanding something about God by using a human figure of speech. Even though it doesn't apply literally, God doesn't have hands. Okay, It's like in Psalm 91, you know, under the shelter of his wings. He doesn't have wings either. So he's not this being who's got just a right hand and some wings. The idea of the right hand is used in scriptures more than 50 times. And here's some places. Psalm 45.4, God's right hand teaches us. Psalm 48 verse 10, God's right hand is full of righteousness. Psalm 77 10, remembrance of the years of the right hand of the Most High. 
Psalm 110 verse 1, the father invites a son to sit at his right hand. Habakkuk 2.16, the cup of God's judgment is held in his right hand. And Ephesians 1.20, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. There's a bit of a theme there. And in the greatness, verse 7, of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You have sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. So he talks there about the walls of water being upright. So this is a, a true miracle. This is not just the wind blowing water off a, what do you call it, an underwater ridge. This is the waters are upright. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Congealed means solidified. The, the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. So that was what Pharaoh was thinking. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So just coming back to this apparent contradiction, you know, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And here it says the Lord is a man of war. Is it a contradiction? No. Take a look at what God was destroying. God is love, yes. But there are forces all around us which are anything but lovely or lovable. And God is waging war against these forces as surely as he waged war against Pharaoh. That is why when you study the Old Testament, you'll see violence in virtually every book. And because the Old Testament is a picture book illustrating physically what we are to do spiritually, where to be violent as well. So, Matthew eleven twelve, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. So how do we battle violently well we do it in prayer we don't literally get a sword and start killing unbelievers but we do battle in prayer we battle in prayer against the spiritual forces that seek to deceive defile and destroy those around us wife did you battle in prayer for your husband today did you pray passionately that the forces of the enemy would not gain a toehold in his life dad did you do what job did who energetically sacrificed for each of his children before the break of day, lest they sin against the Lord, Job 1.5. Did you pray earnestly that they do not fall? Pray to the enemy that seeks to derail and destroy them spiritually. That's just two examples, but you know, whatever needs prayer, we should be praying fervently. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James 5.16. Praying, oh Lord, I pray that everyone be nice, it's not effective or fervent, you know, and doesn't make much of an impact. God is a man of war, but he's a gentleman and he's not going to force his way into any situation. So he's asking us to pray fervently without giving up, but he's not going to force us to. So we can enter into this battle through prayer. We can overcome the evil around us through prayer. So we fight on our knees. As Ephesians in chapter 6, the armor of God finishes with prayer. We need to be praying. It's part of our warfare. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And the answer, nobody. Nobody is like you. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? 
So when we worship, we're proclaiming the superiority of the Lord God over anything else that claims to be a God. Anything else that claims to be a priority over God. More powerful than God. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. So other nations will tremble when they hear about what you do and how powerful you are, saying the children of Israel. Well, guess what happened 40 years later? Here's Rahab, Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. What did she say? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. So they did hear and they did fear. And later, hundreds of years in the book of Judges, when the um, Israelites brought out the ark, they they shouted this big shout and, and the Philistines said, why are they shouting like that? And they said, oh, they brought out the ark. And, and they went, oh, isn't this a God who brought them out of Egypt? God was definitely honored through this. All these people knew who the true God was because of what this is. And I've, in the past, before I kind of studied this, was wondering, well, how do these people in the Old Testament know about God? How did God witness to them? Well, through the Exodus. From Exodus on, everybody knew that God was the true God. No one could deny it. It was just there. This knowledge was there. They had their false gods, but they all knew that God was the true God. And this witness that God had made of himself was his witness to them that he is the true God. And then they had a choice. Because they knew who the true God was, they could choose to worship him or not worship him. So we can't say that these people didn't hear about God or didn't know about God. Then the chiefs of Eden will be dismayed, verse 15. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. We are a purchased people. We have been redeemed. You will bring them in. So God doesn't simply bring us out of Egypt. He brings us into the land of promise. He not only sets us free redemptively, which is awesome, but he also brings us in to a land flowing with milk and honey, which represents a spirit-filled life, a life of victory. Verse 17, And plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Here's another quote from Spurgeon, a lot from him this morning. It is obvious then from the plentiful allusions to this song in Holy Scripture that it is full of deep spiritual significance. It teaches us not only to praise God concerning the literal overthrow of Egypt, but to praise him concerning the overthrow of all the powers of evil and the final deliverance of all the chosen. So it's a bigger song than just the Egyptians being defeated bigger subject 19 for the horses of pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea and the lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them but the children of israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea verse 20 then miriam the prophetess 
So she's one of the people in the Bible who's called a prophetess. Ladies can be prophets. Stephen's daughters were prophets. Had the gift of prophecy. Deborah was another one. So we see that Miriam had some kind of a prophetic gift. However, she used her leadership position or this authority that she had in an unwise and ungodly way in Numbers 12 where she challenged the authority of Moses. So just because I might have a gift, it doesn't mean they're always going to use it for the glory of God. So she is a sister of Aaron, which means she's also the sister of Moses. But in this case, she's doing the right thing. She's joining in. This is a good time for her all right, and for the children of Israel. And all the women then went out after her with timbrels. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, it's great that they're singing here. They've been stuck between Pihakiroth and Migdol, and they've been delivered, and they're singing because they've been rescued. But how much better would it have been for them to be singing before they were rescued? How much better to demonstrate that kind of faith? But the truth is it takes maturity for God's people to have a song in the night. You can see that in Job 35 verse 10, Psalm 42 verse 8, and a couple of New Testament references as well. Acts 16.25 is one of them. And the Jews at this point were very immature in their faith at that time. They're only a very new nation. They'd only you know, had a couple of years of experiencing God's working in their lives. But for us, we want to be growing in our faith. We want to be growing so we can be mature, so we can have songs in the night. We can have our song in the night. We have opportunities for greatness. But the opportunities for greatness only come in those hard times. Once the Red Sea parts, once the financial crisis is over, once the relationship is restored, once the disease is healed, you will no longer have before you the opportunity for greatness. Then you can be grateful, but only now or during the trial can you be great. So Paul and Silas, when the hour was dark, when they'd been beaten for no good reason, mistreated, uh, imprisoned unlawfully, what do they do? They sung songs in the night. Okay, And what was the effect on the prisoners? Well, there was an earthquake, the doors opened. What would you expect to happen? All these prisoners in the prison, what would you expect them to do? Run, get out of there. But the faith of Paul and Silas, their song in the night impacted them so much that they said, you know what? I'm going to stick around. I want to know how to be saved. So you who are in a dungeon financially, relationally, psychologically, have a unique opportunity to show greatness for the Lord. And once the experience is over, you never have the same opportunity again. So you might say, again, we might say, I want to be like David. I want to grab some stones. I want to nail Goliath. I want to get him. You know, I want to be great for the Lord. 
You can be like that, like David, or you can be like Saul and all the other men in the army, grumbling, complaining and drawing back, depressed and discouraged. Or like David did, he praised the Lord in the face of the giant. (laughs) So what are we going to do? We will have our moments where we can be great, where we can demonstrate our faith and the world can see and we can make a difference by this demonstration of faith. This is our cloud of witnesses. There's all these people who demonstrated faith. All these people are great because they trusted God in the hard times. There's Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Jeremiah, David and Paul. They were living out their stories and their stories are just as hard as our stories. The hard times we go through, they've been through just as hard at times. But by God's grace, they chose to be great and to be heroic. And we are the richer for their stories. So when there's an ugly giant before you or the prison bars all around you, it's your chance to be great. So don't miss it because opportunities for greatness come to everyone, but they only come once or twice in a lifetime usually. Those really difficult circumstances that we go through. Fortunately, they don't come all the time. (laughs) Life is really difficult. But when they do come, we need to be ready. Verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. So, would it be nice to stay at the seashore, lounging on the beach, playing tambourines and singing songs of praise? Sounds like a great holiday destination, hey? But God says... Yes, the sea opened before you, but now we must continue on. There's more to learn. So he led them to the wilderness of Shur. And you can be sure he'll do the same with you. So this was not along the trade route. This was off the beaten track. This was into a desert. So let's go for a nice long walk through the Simpson Desert. Who's with me? (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. But they trusted Moses. And they went. We must be able to trust God to the point where we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and be willing to follow God wherever he leads us. Because if we don't, we'll be out of his presence and out of his will. Remember last week we talked about staying under the cloud, under the fire? We go wherever God goes because then it's cool. God protects us from the hot sun and we experience his presence there. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, that's not a long time. Three days is not a long time, but it's long enough to forget the victory they just experienced (laughs) crossing the Red Sea. Because what happens? When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of the place is called Marah. It means bitter. So, you're really thirsty, or your animals are thirsty, and you see this water in front of you. And that word goes back through all the, the people. Hey, there's water coming up. And so I can imagine them, you know, in my mind's eye kind of splashing in. But then they take a sip of water and they go, we can't drink this. It's terrible. It's bitter. It's poison. And sometimes those things happen to us too. We come to our own Mara, a situation, a relationship, an occupation, or even a ministry we think will be cool and refreshing, only to find it bitter. Not what we thought it would be. So why did the Lord choose Marah as stock number four for his people? I believe it was to teach him three lessons. The first, that life is a mixture of sweetness and bitterness. There's hard times and there's good times. If it's only sweet, we have no desire for heaven. 
And the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And I believe the second lesson God wanted to teach his people at Marah was that trials are the x-rays that allow us to see what's going on in our hearts. So if you've got a problem, you get a CT scan, you know, and you see what's inside. Okay, Trials are like a CT scan for our faith and for our character. It shows what's inside. You see, although the children of Israel murmured against Moses, in reality they were murmuring against God for bringing them to Marah in the first place. And the same is true of us. I will never know what's in my heart until I have to dive into a pool expectantly and find it isn't what I thought it would be. People do not make us bitter. Situations do not make us bitter. They simply show us what is already within us. So our reaction doesn't come from the person. Our reaction comes from who we are. If we look at Jesus, he had no bitterness in him. He was spat upon, cursed at, nailed to a cross. And what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So no bitterness came out of him because there was no bitterness within him. So he cried out to the Lord, verse 25, And the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. The third lesson here is that the tree, a picture of the cross, was already there. The tree in the scripture is the cross. The verses for that is 1 Peter 2.24 and Galatians 3. Now, it's the cross of Calvary which still transforms bitter experiences, bitter people, and bitter circumstances. Why or how? By realizing the wrongs done to us, the offenses against us, the disappointments that we experience, have all been paid for, dealt with, and washed clean by the blood of Jesus on Calvary. In temple worship, every sin had to be named individually. On the cross of Calvary, the Lamb of God paid for each sin that we have committed specifically. And a good example is the book of Philemon. There was a slave called Onesimus, and he was Philemon's slave. Now, apparently he must have ripped him off, maybe stolen some of his money or something, and nicked off, ran away. And he ends up with Paul. Then he gets saved. And Paul sends him back to Philemon, and he says this, If Onesimus has wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to my account. That's what Jesus says to us. That's the heart of Jesus. Whatever he, she, or they did to you, he says to us, charge it to my account, for I died for it specifically. So if someone's hurt us, Jesus is saying to us, I know they've hurt you, I know you're angry, charge it to me. You know, I'll pay that. It's okay. So, how does it work practically? Verse 25, There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. So when we take communion, we hold the cup and realize that our sins are washed away, and that I'm robed in God's righteousness, and that God lives in me. But also the one who hurt me the one who abandoned me, the one who disappointed me, is forgiven as well by the same blood that cleanses me. So sometimes when we come to the communion table, or all the time, we need to remember that the grace that God gives us, we also need to give to other people. 
But what she did to me was awful, you say. What he said about me was unforgivable, you say. How they hurt me was incomprehensible, you say. But where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Romans 5.20 Come to the Lord's table regularly, not just for yourself, but for those who hurt you. Cast in the tree of the cross and drink deeply of sweet water once again. The forgiveness. So, Guzak says about this testing, it had yet to be demonstrated by testing whether the children of Israel were a worshipping people who occasionally murmured, or if they were a murmuring people who occasionally worshipped. Their true nature would be revealed in times of testing. Verse 26, And said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. So, in this hard time is another revelation. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you. As we have come to expect, when we go through hard times, we find out more about God. He reveals more of himself to us. Now, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. So their physical health was linked to their obedience. There's a book called None of These Diseases by S.I. Macmillan. And he talks about if Israel obeyed God's laws, it would impact their hygiene and health in a practical way. Things like circumcision, quarantine, washing and running water, kosher foods, they make a big difference in your health. Okay, Those Old Testament laws are actually very healthy. But beyond the medical implications, the practical things, obedience also means we're at peace with God and free from a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety in life. And you know that stress and unforgiveness and bitterness, they make you sick. They affect you physically. There's cancers. There's all kinds of sicknesses that we get, depression, because of sin, because we're not following with the Lord. It's not all the time, of course, but um, that we get sick and it's because of those things, but sometimes it is. Sometimes a doctor will say, the best cure for you is forgiveness. Last verse, verse 27. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. So following the time Marah, God led the children of Israel to stop number five, Elim, or Mighty Ones. With 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, it was a beautiful oasis. It was like a holiday spot. So I'm so glad that God knows how to test us but he also knows how to rest us. And there'll be times when we're tested, but there will also be times that we're rested. But if we notice here at Elam, there was no revelation of who God is. There was no promises given. There was nothing really learned. It was just a time of rest. So it's interesting. The 70 palm trees and the 12 wells of water there were 12 disciples and there were 70 disciples. Remember that Jesus sent out the 70? So you could see it as a picture. Ella means mighty ones. So the mighty ones in God's eyes are the ones who are fruitful. And palm trees? Palm trees are the only trees that get more fruitful as they get older. So 
as a Christian, we should be getting more fruitful as we get older. There's a little picture there for you to think about. So we've covered a lot today. Uh, We've got to the end of chapter 15. I'd encourage you to read through again and just see how God was working with these people. And just ask God to, to, when you go through trials and tests, to stand strong and to be great like David was, like Joshua was, like all these heroes of the faith were. You can be a hero too. Lord, I just thank you that we have this cloud of witnesses around us, Lord, that all these lives that would live before us, people who have trusted the Lord, people who have put their faith in you, people who have done great things because they have praised you in the night, they've had their song in the night, and they've praised you when the times are hard and not waited till the times are easy. Lord, help us to remember that life doesn't revolve around us, but we revolve around you. And Lord, that's a lot of the times that we suffer is not for for us, but it's for those around us to see you working through us. So help us to be patient and help us to persevere. And I pray that you will be glorified through our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.